I have a lava lamp here, uh, but he seems to have a cold or something. He is cold. I, I have my coat wrapped around him and everything, and he is just not wanting to cooperate. But maybe we'll see my illustration come alive. I want to begin with this word incompatible. Incompatible. I want to consider its meaning. Incompatible. Sometimes when uh, there are young people who are looking for a, a spouse, they're looking for that Mr. Right or that Miss Right, and they're, they're, they're searching for the characteristics, certainly for Christ in them, the hope of glory, uh, but then other things that would make them what? Compatible for one another, to be married and, and happy together and complementing one another. Uh, sometimes opposites attract, and that's perfectly compatible. In fact, many of you could, could attest to that. The Lord many times will put people with us who will sharpen us in our weakness and that our strengths can benefit as well. Now, incompatible would be like my lava lamp here. Oil and water, for example. Those are incompatible. They don't mix well. Whatever weird things they put in lava lamps, it's wax and some kind of chemical stuff, but it's not compatible. They won't mix together. Oil and water give us this, this sense. You, you, can, you can stir them up, but eventually they're going to separate. The oil will float to the top and you'll see it. Some of you have been uh, out on the water and your boat begins to leak wa- uh, oil. Where does that oil go? Right to the top. And you know you're in trouble. Another thing that is incompatible would be maybe like this. A, a Mac and a PC. Or Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. They're just not compatible. They wrote entire Uh, computer designs that refused to be compatible to this day. My son has a Mac. It drives me nuts. I don't know how to use it. It has all these weird things. The buttons aren't even in the right place, okay? Lately, it seems like these two things are incompatible, Democrats and Republicans. Now, I'm not going to go down that street very far, but it sure seems like we should find a way to get together on some basic and important issues. We need to pray to that end and start acting like grown-ups and talk and reason together like we used to. Oh, so incompatible. Now, when I use this word this way, what comes to your mind? In fact, when I gave the sermon title to my wife, she said, Jerry, I think that was a typo. You meant in, in, incomparable, Right? The incomparable, no, I, I, no, I meant this, the incompatible gospel. I use that word on purpose, and I want you to see that as we move through our text today. I think it'll become more clear why we have a gospel, in fact, that is incompatible. And we'll see with what uh, in, in the verses ahead. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into these verses together. Lord, we thank you for the way that you work. We thank you for your word. We, we, we do. We treasure this word. These are sacred and holy words, ancient words, preserved by your grace, handed down. They are, they are authoritative in our life like no other words. And we are here. We are ready. We are uh, expectant as we come to your word once again. We, we know how you meet us, the power of your spirit, the purity and and radiance of your word and the view of your son, Jesus. Oh, you sit above it all, Father. 
You are so good to us. And so now as we jump into this text, we pray that you would open our eyes to see glory and beauty and bring life and light and joy and peace as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The incompatible gospel. Now, you remember, we left off last week with uh, Jesus and his disciples in Capernaum at the sinner's feast. They were eating and drinking, celebrating a, a lavish feast that Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, had thrown as kind of an evangelistic going away party. He, he left everything to follow Jesus. He walked away from it all. And then he invited the, the worst of the worst to come and gather. And the Pharisees just, they were appalled that Jesus and his disciples would participate in a feast with sinners and tax collectors. Well, that, was, that was last week. Now, we kind of carry this context forward. I think we're right there in Capernaum. Uh, similar crowd here, kind of back and forth with Jesus. And they pick up this week, and they're, they're moving on from the sinners and tax collectors. They're just bothered now that, that Jesus is eating and drinking with his disciples at all. Okay, now we'll see how this unfolds. I, I lodge this as a, another pharisaical complaint. Verse 33. Listen to what they say. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So do the, the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Okay, so they've moved now from going after the disciples of Jesus to directly interacting with Jesus. Your disciples eat and drink. There's a few things that will help us understand this verse a little more. Sometimes you have to just kind of pull things apart and, and, and examine a little closer. The first question that begs is, uh, who does the they refer to? Okay, let, let me see this. They said to him. So if we continue with the context from last week, we have these Pharisees coming at him. But, but if you compare and contrast Matthew and Mark and their synoptic accounts with what Luke brings us, we find that the they there is, is a little bit unique. I would suggest uh, the they is a collection of people. They've come to confront Jesus. The Pharisees are there. Their scribes are there. But also their followers, their disciples. And you have in this group some disciples of the Pharisees, and some disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, so John the Baptist has followers who are there, and they have an issue with this as well. And so I think that they would be maybe a representation of these two categories. The Pharisees are speaking, even followers of John the Baptist are speaking with complaint here to Jesus. At this point along the way, John the Baptist is already in prison. He's in prison, okay? So if you are a follower of John the Baptist, you have heard him preach, and what is his message? It's a, a, a proclamation of repentance, a baptism of repentance for sin. Mourn, prepare the way, he's coming. There would have been many who heard John point Jesus out and say, this is the one. But there would have been thousands who had not heard that, who had gone to meet John and been baptized and resolved to be more righteous and more repentant, and then left and gone back to their homes. I think in Capernaum, there were a number of people who were um, all in with John, but then John is now in prison. So how do you, 
follow John and, and keep this, this commitment, this fervor, this zeal? Well, the next in line is the religious leaders of your day, the Pharisees. And they're quite serious about this as well. So I think there would have been a lot of followers of John and disciples of the Pharisees who mixed together. And not all in a bad way. Some of this fervor and zeal was, was great. They just needed someone to point the right direction for them. And the Pharisees, sadly, rarely did that in any effective or biblical way. The other thing it's helpful to understand is kind of the context of what's the big deal? Eating and drinking. What, we have to do that to stay alive, right? Why would they have a problem with that? Well, here's a little background. Here is what I would call the pharisaical fasting the practices that were taking place at the time of Jesus. The quote-unquote godly people, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, were to fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday, every week. If you were godly, this is your practice, uh, from sunup to sundown. Now, remember this, the only fast that was prescribed in the, in the law was the fast that was to be conducted on the Day of Atonement. One day out of the entire year, the call was to fast. There were other reasons to fast that I think would truly honor the Lord. If there was a, a burden of sin or a, a heavy prayer uh, a focus, just like we see in the New Testament, that practice would have been pleasing to him. In fact, we see that Jesus would fast, and his disciples would often fast and pray. Even in the New Testament, this is a, a display of pursuing the Lord. The problem is when it becomes the routine, the checklist, the uh, this is what is holy. Do this and you are. When it becomes simply exterior. Fasting was equated with mourning and sadness. And so holiness then over time took this shape. To be truly holy and righteous was to be very serious, very solemn. And you talk very carefully and joylessly and with gloom that is holy and righteous now this happens even in our day this it's a it's it's so easy for a culture to slip in among denominations or even outside of denominations where all of a sudden we we see righteousness and holiness as a certain style of dress right just the right tying of your tie, and everything is just right. Or tone, or things that you don't do, or things that you do. And what connection does it have to the Word of God? That's the question we must ask. Holiness is the echo of God, who He is. We're called to be mirrors, reflectors of that. And how easy it is to add these things on. And Jay did. So Monday and Thursday, you get gloomy and you get hungry because true spirituality is doing the things you, you don't want to do and refraining from the things that you really would prefer to do. How upside down is this? What's amazing is I remember in a missions conference that I was a part of one time and uh, basically the call was, Go be miserable for God. That's my sum up of it. 
He wants you to do that thing that you're most afraid to do, and, and that will be most impressive to him, so go be miserable for God. That is not spirituality. That is not true holiness. Now, we have to be careful not to overstate that. Our idea of comfort and ease can so easily become the bar or the standard that we hold the Lord to. And he says holiness matters more than happiness. And so he will bring us through the valley of the shadow of death to remind us that he sets tables of bounty for us in that place. And he is good even in that place. Okay? The Pharisees would do everything they could to emphasize their discomfort publicly. It was all exterior. They want to impress people with their righteousness. So they would powder their faces, they would throw ash on themselves, and they would get gloomy, and they would, oh, moan and groan. Well, it's Monday. I'm fasting again. Oh, it's so terrible. I'm so righteous. Oh, too bad. You're not like me. That's the backdrop for the feast. What day do you think the feast was happening on? Probably a Monday or a Thursday. It's the sinner's feast. Matthew, the tax collector, is not worried about all of these restrictions, and neither is Jesus or his disciples. So the confrontation takes place with this as the backdrop. The Pharisees and even the, the followers of John the Baptist, they got an issue. It's not just that you're eating and drinking with tax collectors. It's that you're eating and drinking. How dare you? What is this then? What is this? Behind their words, you, you start to wonder, are they coming at Jesus here with accusations of just a lack of discipline? Man, you've got to get your guys in order. What are you thinking? Is this a lack of respect? Clearly, he has no esteem for the law of Moses, like we do. Or, is it a veiled hit that in fact Jesus is not righteous? That the righteousness of Jesus is in question here. That their righteousness would surpass his because they are the ones who are pale and hungry. As Jesus, I imagine standing there, just put yourself in the scene, munching on a chicken leg, maybe, I don't know, maybe some bread, some really good bread. And, and the Pharisees over there just looking at that piece of bread like, you know. This exchange is intense. It makes us connect with the heart of the issue. What is happening here inside? That's always the most important. Now, listen to Jesus' response. A time to feast and a time to fast. Jesus says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I'll pause for a second and we'll consider the next verse in a minute. Jesus comes back with a reference now to a, a wedding feast. A and he says, listen, when, when, when the wedding is, is taking place, the celebration is on and the, the bridegroom is here, why would you fast? We need a little more context, a little more background. So Here's a little bit on Jewish wedding celebrations. It's different than the way we do it. 
we have a ceremony and the wedding is concluded, you're married, and we say, see you later. They go away on their honeymoon, right? Not so in a Jewish culture. The Jewish culture was not a departure for the honeymoon. It was an invitation to celebrate. And it kicked off typically a week-long, seven-day feast. If it was a remarriage, it was three days. And so it would take place in the home. It was an open house, an invitation, feasting and celebration. And even those who were uh, the the rabbis and the, the Jewish leaders would come and they were excluded from restraints of fasting or practice because the celebration was on. And they didn't want to uh, kind of rain on the joy of the moment. And so they would, they would lift the, the restrictions and enter in fully. It's also interesting that those who were attended were chosen friends. Chosen friends. Personally invited by the bridegroom. They were known quite literally as the friends or the guests of the bridegroom. Well, what does this mean then for Jesus in this response that he gives? He is saying with no uncertainty, I'm the bridegroom and the celebration is on. What you see here, what you see, these sinners feasting is exactly appropriate because I am here. And my disciples understand this. It just makes you think. Uh, Just imagine waking up day after day and being able to spend the entire day with Jesus. Face to face. To hear his words. To watch his heart on display in compassion, in, in supernatural works, and to hear the wisdom of God himself speaking. Friends, The reason eternal life is glorious is because we will have this experience. We'll see him face to face forever. That's what makes heaven so good. So these chosen followers of Jesus have the great gift of a three-year wedding feast every day, celebrating his goodness. Learning, watching, discovering. Sure, being convicted of their sins, that would happen. When you're in the presence of one who is without sin, you are regularly confronted with the reality that you are a sinner, but not without hope because Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom and the gospel. It would have been incredible, like nothing any of these men had ever experienced. And so you imagine Peter coming out with a little... uh, a little more bread. Here, Jesus, what's going on out here? You guys talking? Verse 35, he says this then. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Now, these words carry an ominous tone. If you're Jesus' disciples, you're, you're kind of like, what? What was that? The days will come When the bridegroom, when I, Jesus says, am taken away from here, and in those days, they'll fast. They'll fast. This is an anticipation of the cross. Jesus foreshadows. He knows his mission. He knows the work before him. He understands that there is coming a very dark 
valley of the shadow of death. It's going to happen. And there will be fasting. Those dark days after Jesus died and was buried in the tomb, very difficult to consider eating. Right? The weight, the prayer, the loss, the grieving, the overwhelmed experience all day Saturday that broke forth in victory on Sunday. I think there may be a foreshadowing here of even the church age and some of what we do as we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Oh, the brokenness and the heartache in this world, the challenge in our own lives, moments along the way where we say, I'm going to put aside food to focus myself fully in dependent prayer upon you while we wait for his return. There's a place for that in your life. Now, the last few verses here, let's consider this. I, I titled this, The Law of Moses and the Gospel of Christ, because this is at the heart of this passage. This is the reason that Luke includes this in this uh, summary of the life and work of mini ministry of Jesus. This is what, what he's communicating to us, and we can't miss this for anything less than it is. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We are experiencing a transition here. Old Testament, New Testament. We have the uh, practice of the Old Testament, all of the law, the Mosaic commandments that were given to obey. And then what Jesus describes, even as we gather here at the table, this is a new covenant in my blood. Okay, what does that mean? What is he saying? Well, we glimpse it here in a big way. Let me give you a bit of a summary on the Old Covenant. This is the Mosaic Law, the Law of God uh, from Genesis all the way up through uh, the end of the prophets. We have um, examples and displays of God's righteousness in view. The prophets, all of the prophets, at the end of the day, they fall short. They fall short. We see that they're sinners too. The priests, even the priests, they have to sacrifice again and again and again. Even they, each year, wonder on the Day of Atonement, will our sacrifice be accepted? And so they would go in with bells on the bottom of their robe and sometimes even a rope around their ankles so if the Lord struck them dead, they could be dragged out because they too were sinners. And the kings, oh, what a mess that was. Time after time after time. You want a king? I'll show you what happens. Over and over. Even David, the greatest king, sins spectacularly showing that there needs to be a king who is in fact righteous through and through. The sacrifices were repeated constantly. Again and again and again. The blood of the lamb chosen was spilled over and over and over. All of this for a purpose. The temple itself, constructed, torn down, constructed. The, the, the sad state of the temple at the, old, at the end of the Old Testament. It was a mess. It was a wreck. A sin of the people. Hmm. The Holy of Holies, separated out by the curtain. The law of God. Here's the thing I want to be careful to do. I, I don't want us to think the Old Testament is bad. 
The Old Testament is glorious. And we understand the New Testament by, by looking back to the Old. But we love the law of God. Psalm 119, it is our delight, it is our joy. But the law of God was never enough to save. It did two things mainly. The law of God revealed God's holiness and our sinfulness. I remember a, a professor of mine bringing a, a big sledgehammer and he said, this is what the law of God does. It is invincible. It cannot be penetrated. And it crushes us because it shows us how short we fall. We cannot keep the law. That's why sacrifices must continue to be offered over and over. But even in the sacrificing, it was a shadow, a pointer. Every sacrifice was done in anticipation of the sacrifice to come. It was preparation. So faith in the Old Testament shouted this, we need a Messiah. Come. Hosanna. Come save, right? We need a Messiah. That is Old Testament, and it's glorious, and it's good, but it is insufficient to save if that's all we have. It is pointing. It is merely a shadow. Now, the new covenant. This is where fulfillment happens. This is the arriving point of all of the Old Testament that we see in the pages of our Bible. The new covenant. The prophet of all prophets, Jesus. The priest of all priests, Jesus. The king of kings. The righteous king, Jesus. The one who offers the once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus. This is what we see right here. He is, in fact, the new temple. He says, you tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's not talking about stones and mortar. He's talking about his body. And then you take it farther into the New Testament and we understand that we become the temples. Temples who are people who are literally the, the residing place of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Not put away, but fulfilled. Its purpose is brought to its consummation in Christ. And then all of a sudden this word happens. Grace. Grace. Now there's grace all through the pages of the Old Testament. Don't, don't think that there isn't grace there. It's everywhere. But it comes into its most pointed Glorious display in Christ. His love, His grace, His unmerited favor, moving towards sinners who deserve His wrath. Through Jesus, He shows them grace. Grace abounding. It reveals the Savior and we realize salvation. That's the new covenant. It is the reality of which the shadow was pointing us to in the Old Testament. He is the arrival, the accomplishment, and the one that we celebrate of our salvation. Faith in the new covenant is we have a Messiah, and his name is Jesus. We trust him completely. We turn from our sins, and we place ourselves completely in his confidence, trusting in him. Hmm. It's a massive shift. Okay, If you have lived your entire life sacrificing in the temple, 
um, keeping the law, working hard, and knowing that the law is just riddling you and crushing you, and so you go back to sacrifice again, you're understanding that this, this has to lead us somewhere. And Jesus is saying, it leads you to me. It leads you to me. I am the arriving point of the whole law of Moses. Now let's see how these verses unfold. It's, it's literally the incompatible gospel. Watch this unfold. He tells, he tells them a parable. Now, I don't have time to go into the parables. We're going to have a lot more parables coming. This is the first in Luke. It is significant. Jesus is a storyteller. He loves to illustrate his point. Uh, he would probably have something way cooler than a lot. Look at that, it's working. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, he, 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 my lava lamp is, is a wimpy effort compared to what Jesus did. He, he illustrates in story form, sometimes to conceal with parables, to hide truth from people who hear it with their own ears and don't understand, and sometimes to reveal truth. We'll see more in the weeks ahead as we get into more parables. Listen to what he says. He told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. He's making these guys work. He's making them think. Oh, we were talking about fasting. What are you talking about? I'm talking about clothes, man. So you get a new shirt. You don't take that new shirt and say, look at that. Now I've got material to cut and rip out of the new shirt to patch up my nasty old shirt with. Who does that? That doesn't make any sense. That's incompatible. Why would you do that? In fact, in, in Matthew and Mark, we see uh, the word uh, unshrunken. Okay, So fabric that has yet to be washed many times is, is going to shrink. If you take that, you ruin the new one, and you sew it in, as soon as you wash that, guess what happens? It's not going to work very well. It's going to pull away. It's going to tear. It's going to ruin both. You don't chop up a new shirt to patch an old one. What an amazing statement it is. And he gets him thinking. You could say it this way. In your notes, I think this is a helpful way to recall this, to understand this. The gospel is not a patch to add to something else. The gospel stands alone. It's the fulfillment of the law. Not something you say, well, I'm going to continue with all the sacrifices. I'm going to continue trying my best to, to obey the, the law of Moses. And I'm going to have a little Jesus patch on my neck to help me get along. A little infusion of Jesus, great. That sounds good. I'll take that. And I'll just keep doing what I've been doing. Jesus says that that's incompatible. It doesn't work. In Acts chapter 15, we see just this take place, the Judaizers, which was a huge problem in the New Testament church. People, Jews, who were confronted with the gospel of Christ, and they said, great, we'll take Jesus, and we'll keep the law and require the law for salvation. They said this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What is that? 
That is adding works to the gospel. That is, that is telling people that Jesus is not enough. His work is incomplete. You must add yours to it. In our day, it is Roman Catholicism. That's exactly the same thing that is propagated. And it's not biblical. It's not from the Bible. The gospel is not a patch that can be added to something else. It stands alone. In a sense, Jesus is saying, out with the old and in with the new. Hmm. Salvation, as the Bible teaches it, is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Sola fide. You cannot earn what you already have in Jesus. It's by faith alone. You merely trust His provision on your behalf, and you are saved. You are saved. But I just would love for all of us to love that flow right there. Okay? And when you think Reformation theology, when you think what Martin Luther stood for, and the fact that we are who we are today, and we see gospel when we open these pages, these words land so many just paragraphs upon paragraphs of Scripture. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and rooted upon the authority of Scripture alone. That is the basis of our salvation. That's what we love. That's what has changed us. Now, number two, here's another part of the parable. I summed it up by this. The gospel is new wine that requires a new wineskin. It's new wine that requires a new wineskin. So now we're not talking about clothes. We're talking about wine. Listen to what he says. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And all of us are kind of scratching our head and saying, okay, wineskins. I remember when I first uh, really wrestled through these verses, I, I struggled with this because I don't drink wine. I, I, it tastes like NyQuil to me. I don't like it. And I don't have any wineskins. I'm so far removed from these words. Let me show you a picture of a, a goat that would have been skinned and all of the flesh and bones removed, but the skin is kept wholly intact all the way down to the legs. You see how his, his legs are there? And he's hanging. Now, they would start the, the drying process so the skin would begin to uh, turn into the, you know, the leather-like that you would want, but it's very supple. It's very uh, elastic still. Then they would pour the new wine in, basically grape juice here. Uh, we, when we were in Israel, we saw uh, wine was a huge deal in these cities. There were these huge areas where they would put the grapes in and everybody would hopefully wash their feet first. I, I, honestly, that just grosses me out to think, but I guess it's if, if it's fermented, it, it takes care of that. But they wash their feet first and then they're just treading out the wine press and all of the, uh, the grape juice would flow into a cistern. From there, they would take it and put it into the wineskins, doing whatever you do to make wine. I don't have a clue about that. And then it would begin to ferment. 
And as the fermentation process took place, those skins had to be able to expand. Now, if you've ever passed by the freeway and seen a, an animal that got hit by a car and was bloating, that's what it does. The skin can hold. It, it, it expands. I'll spare you the picture of that. Okay? However, over time, just like this guy here, that wineskin becomes brittle and hard. It's old leather. It doesn't have the elasticity that it once had. And if you put new wine in that, you have a bomb waiting to go off. It is going to not go well. And all of that good wine will be lost along with the wineskin. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that he said about the garment. You can't do this. It is incompatible. You cannot take the gospel wine and pour it into your religious system of any kind. Well, I'm trying to earn God's favor. Oh, and I'll take some Jesus. Doesn't work. It will blow up. Here's the formula. You've seen me use this before. Jesus plus something equals nothing. You have, you have a mess. You have a, a, a burst wine skin and, and, and wine all over the ground. You have nothing. However, the gospel by itself, as the new system, the new category, the new person, everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the formula Jesus is speaking of. He is not saying the Old Testament is wrong or bad. He's saying, I fulfill it. And now we move into something totally new. Totally new. Hmm. Now, the third piece of his parable here is fascinating. It almost feels like it, it's, it, like it doesn't fit somehow, but it does. The more you look at it, I said this, don't settle for the old when the new is far better. Don't settle for the old when the new is far better. And this is what Jesus said, no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. The old is good. What an interesting statement. How easy it is to fall into the trap of familiarity. This is just what I know. This is who I am, man. I'm just not religious. I, I, I don't do that Jesus thing. I'm not comfortable with all that stuff that goes with that. I just like the way I live. I like making my own decisions. I like living my life the way that makes sense to me. I'm not interested in having someone else take the reins. The familiarity held tightly. Here's the irony. This isn't even comparison. They're not saying, I tasted the new, I'm tasting the old, like a wine tasting. Eh, I'm going with the old. They refuse to taste the new because they can't get past the old. It's in us to do this. It's in us. The familiar flavor of the old wine of Judaism, and I would add all that had been added to it along the way, had become so intoxicating that many would refuse to even taste the new wine of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. 
isn't old wine better? I'm pretty sure the older it is, the better it is, right? There might be a little dust on the bottle, right? That, that whole thing. For those who would say, Jesus, I, I think you're a little off on your wine lingo here. You're suggesting that new wine is better than old wine. And he would be like, well, did you hear about what happened at the wedding at Cana? Any, anyone hear about that? Just a few miles west of Capernaum, right? In John chapter 2, it's recorded. He's invited to a wedding feast to be a guest of the bridegroom. He and his family go, and something horribly wrong went, went down. They ran out of wine, and the feasting was not over. It was in the middle of the celebration. There was no wine, and the manager who was kind of taking care of everything uh, was, was about to learn this, and the bridegroom was appalled. What do I do? Jesus hears about it, and Mary's like, hey, you can fix that, right? And, and he says, it's, it's not yet time, but then he says, okay. And he directs these servants to take these seven massive jars, 30 gallons each, 20 to 30 gallon jars, six of them. And he says, fill them all with water. That takes some time, so they do that. And then Jesus says, Dip into one and go take a taste to the, the master of ceremonies there. And as they carried that, we're talking like 120 to 180 gallons of water turned into wine. Like that. And that master of ceremonies tasted it and he said, what in the world? Where'd this come from? You never save the best wine to the last, you always serve that up first, but look at what you've done. You saved the best for the last. And Jesus is like, that wine was like two minutes old. Beat that, right? The new wine is better. It's better by far. It is the all-surpassing taste of the gospel that he holds out, even to the hard-hearted religious elite. He calls them, come and taste. Just come taste this. And they stand back. Ah, the old is good. The old is good. And you're out of line. The hardness of heart begins to happen. It's not long before the question and answer time turns into something far darker. And these are the men ultimately who rise up and seek to try to take him out, kill him. Because they're so stubbornly familiar with the old. So it meets us this morning in a couple different ways. I would just say this. The law of Moses shows us our sin and it's gloriously a gift to us in that. We are shown the righteousness of God and we are revealed to be, in fact, exactly who we are. Desperately in need of salvation. And apart from grace, lost and without hope because even that sacrificial system was anticipating some arrival point when the Messiah would come and make things right. If all we have is the Old Testament, we're doomed. The Lord Jesus saves us from our sins. 
The law condemns us. The Lord saves us. What the law could not do is save. Because no one is righteous, not even one. And Jesus comes and he says, come here, come here, everybody. Come, come. Come get a taste. Come taste this. Have you tasted of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus? If you're here today and you are saying, you know what, I, I, I am pretty satisfied with the old. With, with the way things are. I, I, I haven't tasted Jesus, but I can't imagine it's that much better than what I got. I'll tell you this without any doubting, any, any hesitation whatsoever. In fact, pe- people around you will tell you this. Taste of the gospel of God, and there's no comparison. There's just no comparison. It's like light and dark. It's like life and death. It is everything so if you're here and you have yet to taste i would plead with you this morning come get a taste come get a get a taste of this new wine it will satisfy your soul if you're here and jesus is in your life i would ask you this question is he a patch that you've tried to cram into another system? Or is He the entire garment? Are you clothed in Christ? Is He a part of your life? Or is He your life? See the difference? Jesus will refuse to just be a piece of the puzzle. He is everything. That's what it means to have him as your greatest treasure, your Lord. My life is yours. Everything is yours. I am yours. Take the lead. It's all you. That's what Levi said when he walked away from it all. And he stands there with Peter. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's good bread, isn't it? And those Pharisees grumble. And Jesus says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Taste and see. Let's pray. Lord, we are a fickle-hearted people. We settle for so little. We settle for mud pies when the feast of all feasts is offered. Call us from the heart, we pray, O God, away from the old. If we're honest, we are not satisfied. It is not enough. Without you, we are without everything. And with you and you alone, we have it all. I pray that today this flavor of the gospel would be so tangible, so real, even as we prepare for the table where we actually taste bread, your body broken, and the juice to be reminded of your blood shed on our behalf. What a flavor it is of freedom and life and joy. What a celebration it is, oh God. I pray for everyone here to experience that in full today, increasingly so in the days ahead. We give praise to you as we come now to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.